Don't, don't you dare. Don't you dare. Don't you dare put away the snowblower until Easter. Oh, hi. It's Pete Pomisano, and welcome to another episode of RLTP's Off-Road. Boy, have I got a good one for you this week. This week, the playwright of The Thin Place, Lucas Nath. Lucas Nath is a fascinating guy. He is one of the top young playwrights in the country. You've heard of his plays. You may have even seen some of his plays. RLTP has done some of his plays locally. So you may have seen a public reading of an unproduced screenplay about the death of Walt Disney. That's the actual name of the play. RLTP produced that back in 2015 over at the Market Arcade. But then they also produced The Christians in 2018. Lucas Nath was getting to be a favorite of Scott Behrend. And of course, A Doll's House Part 2 was done at another theater locally. And now, The Thin Place, which opens February 23rd, this week. Now, I apologize up front because, as you know, I am quite enamored of playwrights and I try not to fanboy all over the place. But... This guy was very interesting to me, and his plays are so unique. His voice is so different that I really had a lot of questions for him. So it's a pretty long interview, but it's a really interesting one. But before we get to the interview with Lucas, I just want to give you one other piece of information, and that is that the Road Less Traveled Theater finally has completed their newly remodeled lobby and bar area, and it is spectacular. It's beautiful. You'll want to hang out there before the show starts. You'll want to hang out there after the show ends and talk to your friends about it. And The Thin Place is the kind of show you will want to talk about. So get your tickets online as quickly as you can and go see The Thin Place. Now, that's enough of me. Let's talk to Lucas Nath here on RLTP's Off-Road. So, you grew up in Orlando, Florida, which I think, and I've heard you mention this before, very theatrical place down there, lots of thrill rides and excitement going on. I've heard you say that perhaps that had an influence on not only your life, but your but your writing. Would you say that's true? Yeah, there's a there's a lot of buildings in the area where I grew up, where the front of it would look like a big Gothic castle, and you'd walk around to the side, and you'd see a little box-like building attached to it. So there were a lot of facades. Yes, and uh, the sort of in front of scene, behind the scene, was something that you're you're often very aware of that there's sort of this front-facing illusion and then there was something behind it. There's there's the man behind the curtain, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not just the glitz that you see on the front. So I have to think that that had made an impression. I remember being very aware of it at the time and also really appreciating things like theme park design. And, and you know, I think I, I probably was interested in being a theme park designer, or I wanted to make haunted houses. Haunted houses were something that I was too scared to go in to them. I would often have to run out of them as a child, but there was sort of a an interest. Because it scared me so much, I was sort of compelled by it. So I, I think that was also always part of it. And, you know, I, I also really liked magicians. I liked magic. That was something I got into as a child that feels also connected to Orlando and Disney and theme parks and the Mm. tourist environment. Do you think that because you sort of had this all around you, you had an interest not just in going into the haunted house or or being part of it, but getting behind the scenes and helping to create sort of the, the illusion and that that sort of is, I guess that leads to playwriting in some way. You're helping to create the illusion. Well, if the haunted house is too scary to walk through, mm-hmm. you have to run out crying. The only way to get a handle on it is be the person who makes the haunted house to see how it works, because then that makes it less scary. Yes. So I think there is something about that interest in making things as a way of kind of getting some kind of a agency over things that either scared me or were 
also very exciting to me. Mm -hmm. uh, something about the, the showbiz of all of it was appealing as well. Yeah, I, I feel like showbiz was maybe something I was less tuned into because that implies celebrity and that implies, uh, but the making of the thing um, I see. was probably a primary interest. Did you have, were your parents involved in any kind of uh, entertainment field in any way? Uh, before I was born, my, my mother and my um, biological father were in the record industry. Hmm. They had gotten out of it by the time I was of conscious age. But that that was something that was always sort of hanging around in the, the distant background. Mm -hmm. There was a, There was an entertainment aspect to the record business, if nothing else. So you knew that there was, there's something going on behind the sausage being made, yeah. how entertainment is, is put together. Did you have siblings, by the way? No, no. What about high school and grade school? Did you have any interest in theater or plays or those sorts of things? I did do high school drama. Uh, I think my my interest in theater, I think, sort of always began first with set design. Hmm. That That's actually what intrigued me about plays. I was always interested when you walked into the theater and you saw what the set was. Yes. And there was sort of a promise that there were going to be things that happened with the set or that there were things hidden inside the set. So uh, when I was, I don't remember how old, quite young, I there were some students at my school who put on a show and I wanted to do the set. I have no recollection of what I even did or if I <laughs> actually made anything, but I identified as the set designer. Later, I, I did act. I performed in the plays, which mm -hmm. I, I liked for a while, but I was, I was always more drawn to making what the play was yes as opposed to to performing what somebody had made I, I can really identify with that yes walking into a theater it's always a treat yeah let's see what the stage is going to look like let's see what surprises are in store for us and and as you said there are always not always but there are often little secrets to be revealed during the play oh i didn't see that coming or i didn't yeah. see that set change oh it revolves or or whatever and do you still carry that through in your scripts? Do you have a very detailed explanation of what you think the set should, as opposed to just saying, here's a, here's a layout? Yeah. Do you include a more detailed description of what you think you would require for a set design or what you suggest for a set design? Or is it more simply a floor plan of some kind? I don't know how to write a play unless I know how it works on stage. Like I, it, I know that there are a number of playwrights who they, they write the text and then director and designers will create what the design is. Mm -hmm. I actually have no idea what's being said on stage or how it's being said unless I know how I'm using the stage. I see. There are often certain theatrical devices built into the storytelling. I'll use the Christians as an example that that's a play written entirely to be performed on mic yes. on a set that should look like the stage of a of a big church. Yes. And there's a theatrical idea in the play that the regardless of when and where the scene is happening because the opening scene begins during a church service and it's yes. the sermon from a church service that there's a kind of one-to-one -one relationship between what you're seeing on stage and what's happening inside of the story. I see. It's almost immersive. Mm -hmm. And then the second scene in the play takes place in the pastor's office, but nobody really leaves the stage. It's still performed on mic. Right. There's text in there where the actor turns to the audience and says, you know, Elder Jay walks into my office and says, so it, it's built into the text, a device for orienting you to the new location. Mm -hmm. And then those sort of disjunctions between what you're looking at and what's happening in the story start to kind of increase mm -hmm. so that the second or third, to, depending on how you count them, second <laughs> to last scene of the play is the pastor and his wife in bed talking, but there's zero attempt to bring, or there should be zero attempt to bring a bed out onto stage and have them lay in the bed. I'm sure that people have tried doing that. Um, I turn a blind eye to it when it happens, but that is not recommended because there's an experience I'm trying to create where 
I know that there is a disjunction between what you're looking at and what's happening in the story. And that necessitates a certain kind of mental reconciliation, mm -hmm. that there's a tension between the two things that I think is really interesting and exciting and adds to the storytelling and, and contains within it a kind of idea, mm -hmm. which is no matter what, everything has public ramifications, mm -hmm. even what's happening between uh, uh, these two individuals in bed at night. When I saw it, when Road Less Traveled did the play, that exact thing happened, although I don't remember the scene. I remember that when they switched to his office, they were both still holding microphones. Yeah. So you put in the script that they should still be holding microphones throughout this. Yes. I see. Yes. Okay. And I, I do it in a very kind of gentle way in the, mm -hmm. the actual script. I try to suggest it by writing less explanation. I, <laughs> I, I, do, I do sort of trust that somebody can read the script and my couple of stage directions and understand how it operates. But there is a document that if a theater, and I don't know to what degree it actually gets distributed, but if a theater licenses the play, mm -hmm. there's an additional document that the theater is supposed to get that talks through, here's how the play developed in terms of the movement from workshops into production and why certain choices were made. I see. Which is not me saying, you must do this, you must do that. I'm explaining how it works and hoping that people read that and understand, oh, I get why you're doing that and what the results are if you don't kind of take the lead of the play. Mm -hmm. Because I do think that the the staging and the um, the text and, and how the story works are intertwined. And with The Thin Place, there is a much longer document because how that, the rules of how that play uses the stage are, you know, if you're watching it, incredibly simple, almost, mm -hmm. you might even think almost non-existent, right. but it's incredibly complicated what you need to do to make that play work. Yes. Um, there's a lot of strategies that are really important to embrace because it's the desire to write that play came in part from the desire of just, I wanted to write a horror play. I wanted to write something that I thought would be really frightening on stage. And what what's scary on the screen is a little different than what's scary on the stage. Yes. You can do jump scares on the stage, but bringing out a really scary monster, you know, it, it, monster costumes, <laughs> you have to go pretty abstract for it to be believable on or disturbing, right? Yes. It, it's sort of like you have to go even more unbelievable for it to be to feel believable. And so I sort of developed some principles of what I think is scary on stage, which may not be the same for every person, mm -hmm. but it's in short about letting the audience do a little more of the work I see. than the stagecraft. In their own imagination, in their own... We'll talk about The Thin Place with more detail because there are yeah. comments that you've said about what your mind can do and what people can put into your mind, even without you knowing it can sometimes be so frightening. And, and The Thin Place, from my understanding, it, start, it just starts with two chairs yeah. uh, just on the stage, but there's a lot of backstage magic, which may be why you dedicated, part of the dedication is to the magician Ricky Jay, yeah. uh, who is, you know, a well-known, was a well-known magician. And I wondered about that, but now hearing you talk about it, it, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Can we just talk for a second a little bit about how you even started in actually writing plays? Because I know, I know that you went off to New York City at some point, and was it true that you were intending to study pre-med? So I, I uh, went to NYU because, mm -hmm. in, in large part because I wanted to be in New York. Um, New York was interesting to me. I had visited two sure. times previously. and, and uh, uh, New York is a different kind of thrill ride from what they offer in Orlando. Yeah. And I also, I, I don't drive. I actually, I have a little bit of a car phobia. Mm -hmm. So New York is one of the few places you can live where you don't need a car. Right, right. And uh, to this day, I, I still retain my car phobia. But I had started dabbling with playwriting in high school. Oh, because I was reading, I was reading a lot of um, Albie, Sam Shepard, 
Uh, Elmer Rice's adding machine was actually an early influence on me. How did you get to reading Edward Albee and Sam Shepard in high school? It's not stuff you just picked up on your own. Well, yes. Like that was the day of, I don't think we even quite had Barnes and Noble yet, but it was... Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Walden Books. It was just post Walden Books, whatever was just between Walden Books and Barnes and Noble. And borders. Yeah, it was Borders. It was Borders. And, yeah. and so, you know, you had you first started having these larger bookstores. And I mean, there weren't many contemporary playwrights where you could get anthologies of their mm -hmm. work, where you could get their, you know, Albee would be always stocked. And there were those two collections of Sam Shepard plays that were pretty easy to find at the time. And so that's how I found them. And I had actually seen a high school do a, at one of the high school, high school theater competitions. That's another place where I would find playwrights I didn't actually hmm. know at the outset. And there was a high school that did a production of Mystery of Irma Vep, mm -hmm. the Charles Ludlam play. The gimmick of the play is it's two actors in a kind of quick change routine yes. playing about a dozen characters. And it's sort of a, it's a gothic horror story. <laughs> and I have pretty severe face blindness. Like I, I wouldn't recognize my own mother if I saw her out of context. Mm -hmm. So I truly, truly, truly had no idea it was only two people. Like that was beyond me. Like I, wow. I was, you know, somebody had to tell me. And it blew my mind. Like somebody told me on intermission. Wow. So then I was watching for it. And <laughs> so I was like, oh my gosh, this is one of the best things I've ever seen. And, sure. and uh, I managed to track down at a Central Florida library, the collected plays of Ludlam, which was, a, you know, for, for the time and place, a pretty obscure thing to find. I think that collection is still hard to I'm sure. track down and it yes i feel bad but i i never returned the book i still have it <laughs> and since have met like you know there'd be pictures of people like uh lola pashalinsky and black-eyed susan and people i've been in the same room with like since moving to new york it's like oh my god that's lola pashalinsky i'm i'm you know, she would she would come out. She, you know, she's um, Linda Chapman's partner, Linda, who was one of the people who ran New York Theater Workshop. And so, we would go out to do workshops at Dartmouth, and Lola would come out, and I'm, <laughs> my mind would be blown because as a little high schooler, I was seeing her picture in this Ludlam book. Anyway, so that was sort of my that was where my head was at with playwriting in high school. So when I came to New York, I was in pre med and. As a freshman, you take very few focused. You know, you take a couple of science classes. Right, yeah, you're right. not taking focus classes. But even the 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 science classes were very easy for me, and 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 actually a bit boring. And so I was spending most of my time writing plays, and that was around the time when I first encountered Carol Churchill's work, which then mm -hmm. became a very significant influence on me. And then I saw the other really big influence was I saw my first ever Richard Foreman play. Richard Foreman, who who I had not heard of prior to coming to New York, and I think actually right now very few people know know who he is. But he's yes. sort of the great granddaddy of New York avant garde theater. I see. And uh, uh, contemporary of Ludlum's, but doing and often working in the same theater complex, but doing very different work. Absolutely. You know, you walk into his plays, and it was sort of recaptured for me what it was like to walk into a haunted house as a child. You'd walk into these rooms that were like obsessively designed with strings stretched across the space and multiple plexiglass walls. And it had the vibe of a fun house mm -hmm. and they're incredibly abstract plays. I do truly believe that there is a plot. I do think they operate by a kind of plot, but not in a way that's immediately recognizable. I see. But they're extremely funny, sure. and you have no idea why they're so funny. And they're they're quite beautiful, and you have no idea why it's so beautiful. And I became very, very enamored with his work and would go back and see his shows like up to four or five times a year. 
just constantly like returning to this little space he had in the back of St. Mark's Church. I mean, he's since retired, but he remains a really important influence and also sort of confirmed for me that design matters, you know, <laughs> and he, he would design his own shows. Yes. And, and part of how they operated was through design. Uh, it would teach you how to watch the play. So I, after sort of finding Carol and finding Richard's work, I applied to transfer into the Department of Dramatic Writing at NYU and was accepted and, and started, not started writing plays, but really pursued it fully. Well, let me ask you this. What, what blueprint did you have for writing plays at such a young age? Did you read a book? You know, was there playwriting for dummies? How did you know just from attending plays and observing and reading plays? Did you understand the format and the structure that needed to go into it? Yeah. And in fact, like I, I, I didn't read a how-to book. For me, the sort of most useful lessons came from reading plays and rereading them and rereading them and trying to break down how they work and uh. trying to Im imitate them. So there was a lot of imitation Sam Shepard. There was a lot of imitation Albee. There was even some imitation Richard Foreman, Carol Churchill. So it's in part through imitation. And then after I saw my first ever Richard Foreman show, which was this play called Benita Canova, I went down the street to the really great St. Mark's bookstore that mm -hmm. doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. And oh, no, no, it was actually Shakespeare and Company. There were oh. two, two fantastic bookstores right near each other, but it was Shakespeare and Company. And they had the whole, just about the entire basement floor was just all plays. And I was like, I, I wanted to see if they had anything by Richard Foreman. And there was a book called Unbalancing Acts, hmm. which is a collection of about five of his plays, plus pages and pages and pages and pages of interviews with him. Hmm. And he's a really good, he's extraordinary at explaining his work and how he makes the decisions he makes. I see. And so that was, that was a really important theater school for me. Even before I went into that dramatic writing program, I was studying what Richard Foreman had to say about you know, why he's using a microphone on stage, but not only is he using a microphone, but he's taking the microphone and putting it just at four feet from above the ground so that the actor had to bend over just a little bit. And that created an interesting tension in the actor's body hmm. and made it a visible choice that you had to lean into the microphone at that moment. It made it a stronger action. He wouldn't use those words, but it was it actually made it a more intentional action for that character at that moment. You were so much enamored with just the whole concept of playwriting that you basically, until you got to NYU and switched to the dramatic writing program, you were basically self-taught and very intentionally pursued these books that you that might help you in every place you could possibly learn something you were learning on your own and and until you got to the dramatic writing program which i'm sure opened other doors for you and opened your eyes in other in other ways perhaps when you were at nyu would that be fair to say yeah and and because I, I i'm actually now teaching the program and and my pedagogy is really based around creating the space for teaching yourself. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a fan of the model that, that some people use of, well, here's my script pages, give me notes. Ah. I especially find it problematic if you're, you know, the way that many playwriting classes are structured, you're bringing in 10 pages a week mm -hmm. and getting notes on them, but you haven't even finished the play. Mm. So you don't know what it is you're attempting to do. Interesting. There's no way the people who are seeing you work know even less about what you're attempting to do. Oh. And it always seems a little, frankly, insane to start giving notes. <laughs> and I sort of make the assumption that the writer is in the place to know more about what they're attempting to do if given the opportunity. Mm -hmm. And uh, there, I can I can teach a lot of diagnostic tools. I can teach a lot of ways of getting a better look at the play that you're writing. A lot of it is most writing problems are seeing problems. Like there's something that you can't see about what you're writing. Hmm. 
the faulty notion is that somebody else has a better perspective on it. Mm. I don't think I buy that because the other person is just coming in with some assumptions. Mm -hmm. And you may be operating from a fundamentally different dramaturgy or a dramaturgical model than the person looking at your play. I see. And so, you know, and I think it, I think your dramaturgical model is in part a function of what you've read and seen. Uh, there's always a component of imitation at play. That's your reference point. And so a lot of times it's about kind of going back to those things that you value and trying to understand how they work. And then that becomes the plays you've read often become the best note givers. Mm -hmm. And you you may not be copying fully what those other plays are doing, because sometimes what happens is there's something that you're very influenced by up to a point. And there's something that the work that you're influenced by isn't accomplishing that you'd really love to see. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the invention happens. So you're not a proponent of, or you don't endorse other playwrights, perhaps like the sitting around in a circle and you read your plays and you have this critique going on back and forth. Uh, you're not fond of that procedure. I'm personally not fond of it. And so I will never teach something I that I would never do because <laughs> that would just make me a hypocrite. Yeah. And I don't have the sensibility for it. You know, yes. I wouldn't know how to teach that method. I see. Because I, I have actually not found it terribly useful, but I, I won't discount it as a model. I understand. Which brings me to the idea that you've had several of your, of your earlier plays started at the, the Actors Theatre of Louisville. Yeah. And how did you make a connection there? And I know you, you also dedicated The Thin Place to not only Ricky Jay, but to uh, your director who has directed several of your plays and his yeah. name Les Waters Les Waters and was there a matter of collaboration going on in those in those early plays or explain your connection yeah. to that theater it, it relates very much to what I was just talking about too mm -hmm. so I had written a short play a 10-minute play about Anna Nicole Smith okay okay called the courtship of Anna Nicole Smith the sort of theatrical gimmick of the play is there's absolutely zero attempt to impersonate the person so the idea is we kind of come to it with a lot of baggage about like who Anna Nicole is and mm -hmm. like her, her, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a kind of two dimensional image of that person. And by refusing to lean into it at all, I feel like there's a kind of three dimensionality that kind of happens. So you're sort of ignoring right off the bat, the fact that she was this big playboy model and, yeah. and, 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 and so on. And you're just starting cold without even, using that as a basis for the beginning of the play. Correct. Some of it's based on, you know, tr true life events, but mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not playing into any of the received notions about oh. that stuff. Okay. And so it was a play that I'd written and I, I, I submitted it to Actors Theater's 10-minute play competition because they used to have this competition where they would select a couple of plays to be performed in the Humana Festival, and then it would select even more to be performed a few months earlier in their Apprentice Festival of 10-minute plays. Mm -hmm. And as I understand it, my play went straight into the reject pile. Whoever first <laughs> read it, like, thought, was, was sort of confused by they thought I didn't know who Anna Nicole was. They didn't quite get the irony. <laughs> I see. <laughs> and um, a uh, assistant at the time named Sarah Lunny, she was an assistant in the lit department, she would make it a habit to kind of go through the reject pile and just check it, just to see if there's anything worth taking another look at. And she pulled my play and responded to it strongly and, and uh, programmed it in that apprentice festival of 10-minute plays. And I flew out for the rehearsals and the opening. It's like a three-night-only type of thing. And uh, that turned into an invitation to, well, what else do you have? And I sent them an earlier draft of my play, Hillary and Clinton, mm -hmm. which uses, used a, a similar trick. And um, my memory was it made it into the final round of Humana, but didn't make the cut. And then they offered me a commission to write something for their apprentice anthology of plays that happens in the Humana Festival. And they said, well, send us another play as well. 
And so then I sent this play, Death Tax, mm-hmm. that they were in between artistic directors at the time. Les had not come on board. He had been appointed artistic director, but he wasn't planning that Humana Festival. I see. So that Humana Festival was planned entirely by the lit department. So it was a case of like, the inmates were getting to run the asylum in the best possible <laughs> ways. The lit department saying, well, these are all of our favorites. Yes. And so Sarah and Amy Wagner programmed Death Tax. And so that was sort of my professional debut. That was the first time that a professional institution had mm-hmm. decided to produce one of my plays. Could, could it have been because you, your plays are well known for being unconventionally, yeah. unconventional theatrically, but as literature, they would would have found that much more appealing, as you said, when the inmates, they were looking at it as a piece of literature, as opposed to how do we stage this. So a play that ordinarily somebody would say, "Eh, I I don't get this. That's fascinating. That that is a very cool story. Yeah. And I think now at this point, there's a kind of style, there's a certain kind of minimalism that my plays embrace that mm-hmm. that people are now quite familiar with Aware and of, can sure. kind of start to imagine even more fully, oh yeah, this would work if rendered in this style. I see. But at that point it was sort of unproven. So we had a I had a great experience working on Death Tax there. I loved the production that Ken Rush Schmall directed. And uh our opening night was Les's first week on the job. I see. And Les saw it and and was really taken with it and said, I want to commission your next play. I had already had another commission from them to write a short play for their apprentices, but then right. sort of like write a, also write a full length play. <laughs> so that became The Christians and I wrote that very specifically for Les because I I was, you know, I, I had a sense of kind of where our aesthetics met mm-hmm. and even more than I had anticipated were 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 actually even more on the page. You felt like he he got you. Yes. He yes. he he got where you were coming from. We share a lot of reference points. Mm-hmm. And it, it makes sense because of course he he directed the original production of the first Carol Churchill play I had ever read. I see. So he directed the Scriker. So so there was a there we, we were we were kind of coming from a similar place. Did that sort of free you up? Did you feel like you had, because because there was someone who understood where you were coming from, that you could take it even further yes. or you could feel more free? Yeah. And and the thing, the thing that's actually really important about actors theater and in terms of process, I, I do feel like I, I was spoiled with my first production because the lit department was running things mm-hmm. and what they wanted to do was whatever I wanted to do. Wow. So... I had, at this point, I had been kind of building my work on my own for many years, kind of in isolation. So I'd actually kind of found a way that I liked working. I see. And so I was able to come in and say, oh, so here's how the, here's how we need to structure the workshop. <laughs> and they just <laughs> let me do it. Okay. And, and I, I, what was funny about Death Tax was that it got programmed before I had ever even heard the play read aloud. So, which is actually rare for me. I, mm-hmm. I like to hear stuff back because it's how I learn what I think about it. Mm-hmm. But um, I scheduled a read. I was a, a, a resident at New Dramatists at that point. I scheduled a reading there, and I mean, I, I was really horrified by it. I thought it was. I thought it was a. Uh, I was really unhappy with the play. Mm. That there were some pieces that I thought were strong, but there was a lot that I thought did not work the way I wanted it to. So I sent a letter to the Actors Theater where I told him I'd had a reading. I said, here's what my understanding is of the story right now. In the current draft, this is what happens in the play. I see. And then I explained, here's what I think is working about it and why it works. Here's what I think does not work about the play and why it's a real problem that this isn't working. And then finally, here are the things that I want to do or need to do or need to have in terms of a workshop in order to make it work the way I want it to. And I guess nobody had ever done that before. That was sort of <laughs> a big shock because yeah. I do think there is a little bit of a culture of the playwrights going, here's my play. What do you think? What do you think? Yes. What do you think of my play? And I instead flipped it and I told him what I thought of the play. 
and was quite brutal about it. But I thought nothing of the letter. I thought, well, you know, I need to send this letter to him. I need to let them know mm-hmm. what work we have to do. Sarah later told me, and Sarah has since become a, a very significant collaborator of mine. We, we work together on a lot of projects, and this is actually the model by which we work. <laughs> I call them Dear Sarah Letters. I send a letter to Sarah. I say, here's the deal. This is what we have to do. <laughs> and we get to work, you know, and it's sort of, it, it's not about this sort of one direction of receiving notes. It's like, we're now in dialogue about these problems. I here's see. what I think. Is this crazy to think this? And then, you know, we'll, every conversation is framed by me, my statement of, of, of assessment. I see. And where you think that what you think the steps are that need to be taken. Yeah. And this only occurs after you've heard the play, uh, a reading of the play? Yeah, I have to have the experience of being an audience member to the play. That's your procedure. That's your tool that you need in order to start revision or continue revision or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And and it's it's an easier said than done thing because in order to really be an audience member to a play you have to forget that you wrote it. Mm. And if I have one unique advantage in this process is that I actually have a very bad memory for what I've written. Oh. Um it, it evaporates very quickly. I think it's because I write a lot. Yes. That I can't keep track of it. So for a very long time I'm able to watch a play as though I don't know what's going to happen next. Oh, that's you know, great. I kind of do and I kind of don't, but I'm able to get there close enough to sort of like feeling the actual, oh, oh, wait, what's going on? That is a tremendous advantage. Well, you've turned a disadvantage into a tremendous advantage for but you. But I do, I do, and maybe it's a faulty belief. I do think anybody can kind of get there if you just remember what it's like to watch a play that you didn't write, <laughs> you know, and you can kind of, you know, I say, just pretend you're the dumbest person in the room uh-huh. and you can kind of dull your, your brain a little bit to just sort of feel that. Um, but it does take practice. Like you have to kind of make a point of it and you may need to hear work several times in order to do it. And you, you have to be mindful of don't count laughs. You know, if you start counting laughs, then you're already out of it. Or yeah. don't think about whether or not the actor is reading that line right. That's irrelevant. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. how does that line work? Yeah. <laughs> it's a different question. And the Actors Theater of Louisville has afforded you this opportunity. This is why they've produced so many of your plays, because you've sort of done this collaborative procedure with them. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, we, we just ended up having a good working relationship. I mean, everything beyond Death Tax was a commission. So I did that short play called Night Night with them. And then I, the next year I did The Christians. Mm-hmm. And then... Hillary and Clinton? No, they never did Hillary and Clinton. That, oh, okay. that one, that that one was a um, a hard pass from the prior uh, artistic <laughs> leadership. Or no, it wasn't. It wasn't hard pass. It made it to the finals. It, oh, I see. But uh, then, then place was the the last one I did with them. And the first actual Broadway debut you had was A Doll's House Part Two? Yeah. Is that right? But you had been produced elsewhere, and but the first one that actually came to Broadway. Was and prior prior to Broadway, we did the Christians at Playwrights Horizons. Yeah. I did the Disney play at Soho Rep. I did a play about Isaac Newton at Ensemble Studio Theater, and I'd done Red Speedo at New York Theater Workshop, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is a great family of theaters to be working with. Absolutely, um, absolutely. I continue to work with all of them. I've taken up a ton of your time, and I I really want to talk about the Thin Place. Yeah, but yeah. I have to ask. Because I didn't know anything about Dana H. until I read about it. Yeah. And I just want to explain to people who are listening that Dana H. is based on a true story of, of your mother's kidnapping. And what you did was you took an interview with her and used the audio tapes when she recounted this horrifying incident. And you took this audio, this audio tape and it became an exercise in lip syncing for the actor who portrayed Dana H., your mother, on stage. What an amazing concept. Can you tell me where that came from? The play consists of nothing but listening to this audio tape played back as the actor on stage lip syncs it as if she is herself 
Dana H. Yeah. How did that concept come about? And it's, it's, I'll, I'll say even a little bit more about how it's constructed because there's, um, because I find it interesting, but during my, uh, I don't know, twenties, I, I found this playwright director named Reza Abdo, who is since passed away. He, he passed away in the nineties, but I was able to watch a lot of his stuff on video at the New York Performing Arts Library. And you can actually find his work now on Vimeo. A lot of it's actually just been put up there by his old company members. Hmm. And uh, his uh, Law of Remains, Hip Hop Waltz of Eurydice, and uh, a couple of others. And and he would often use this technique of uh, having the actors lip sync everything. Hmm. And it's, it was something that I became very interested in, partially because of the the virtuosic nature of that. Yes. Performance technique. And also the ways in which you feel like you're seeing the performance created in front of you, like seeing the strings of a puppet. So I had been playing around with lip syncing for a little while. I had written a, one of those sort of like I call them drawer plays, the plays that you write that you put in a drawer and you just never really show anybody. <laughs> I have one that had a lot of lip syncing in it. I, I played around with some lip syncing in grad school. And uh, I had been wanting to make a play about this thing that had happened to my mother. And the moment when it clicked was just thinking, oh, I should resurrect this technique. And the thing about my mother and her voice is that the way that she explains things is very surprising. She is a very kind of deadpan demeanor and will sort of undercut vocally things that you might think would be horrific. She'll laugh through things that are you would think somebody would be crying through. There's there's something. And so that tone of voice was interesting to me. But then also on top of that, when I had played around with telling this story, I always knew that one of the challenges was going to be people were going to wonder, wait, so this part's made up. There's a lot of very hard to believe stuff that happens in it. Mm -hmm. And something about having it be on tape acts as a kind of prover, an additional little piece of evidence that this is real. I see. Now, the thing is, is it's not quite as simple as just having somebody lip sync to the tapes because it's many, 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 many hours of material. We were talking about editing earlier. So like the piece is kind of cut together within within an inch of its life. Like it's funny because it, the the writing of that play feels absolutely no different from the writing of any of my other plays. Yes. And I try to make it transparent that it's edited. I make audible some of the cuts. There are many, 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 many more cuts than you hear. <laughs> and it's not that I'm changing the facts, right. but it is a constructed piece of drama. Because basically, if you were to just play the the tapes, where she is at the beginning is where she is at the end. Wow. Right? Okay. Like she yes. knows everything at the beginning that she knows at the end. There's not mm-hmm. that feeling of like there's a change happening or that there's a... There's not enough drama. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, in, 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 in a lot of the work of it became about with every sort of piece she describes, every sort of moment, every sort of episode she'll have a lot of thoughts about it. And so I kind of realized there's a pattern in the transcripts that is sort of, I would call evidence and reflection. Mm. Here are the facts. Here's Mm -hmm. what I think. I see. Now it's very monotonous to constantly be going, here's what I, here's what happened. Here's what I think of this. Here's what happened. Here's what I think of this. It feels like, okay, everything feels explained. So then you pick the most important realizations and then you figure out the structure that gets you to those moments, those wow. turns. And so that was sort of the work of building it. But it's all invisible. You can't see it. Oh. You know, it's sort of like it's... It's just and, brilliant. And it, and it would be so... Just hearing you describe it this way, the task that you are describing sounds so complicated and so, well, intensive yeah. that you have to take, I don't know how many hours worth of the, the interview to get them down to a play size and then to build all of these peaks and valleys and all of this building suspense, building drama, building, you know, it sounds amazing. And uh, I had to ask about it because yeah. when I read about it, I thought, what? <laughs> Are you kidding me? It just sounds terrific. 
Thank you so much for that. I, I appreciate it. It really sounds like a brilliant, a brilliant play that I would love to see. Speaking of brilliant plays that I would love to see, The Thin Place. Scott Barron, who is our artistic executive director, is a tremendous fan of yours. Uh, you may not remember this, but he actually met you when uh, Stephen McKinley Henderson yes. was in the cast of, of A Doll's House Part Two. That's right. No, he I met you backstage. Where it was. Yeah. It was, it was, it was, was the night of your which birthday. Was the same place, the same place where I met Ricky Jay. <laughs> really? He <laughs> was actually backstage there. Uh, well, he felt different, it, different night. He but, felt yeah. totally out of place because they were all celebrating your birthday. And of course, he's just meeting you for the first time. Yes, and he yes. was there for Stephen. Yeah. But since then, he, he has told me that he thinks that you're one of the probably well, he doesn't say probably. He considers you one of the greatest playwrights of your generation. So I wanted to make sure that I got that through. Oh, that's very nice. Thank you. And he did produce. He was the first person in Buffalo to produce, you know, the Walt Disney play. Yeah. And then the Christians and and would have done a Dallas House part two if somebody else hadn't snapped it out from underneath him. And again, the minute he knew the thin place was was up. He grabbed that immediately because he said, uh, I've got to have this roller coaster ride for the road less traveled theater, which is the way it's described in, in some reviews. I mean, you may yourself have described it as a, a roller coaster ride full of twists and turns. You know, it's, that I, you it, it, to stick with the ride analogy, it would be <laughs> it's it's a dark ride, right? It's more like a funhouse ride than a yeah, the where, haunted mansion rather than just Terror Mountain or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Space Mountain. Space right? Mountain, like that's it, yeah. But the thing about dark rides is that the, the way they're constructed, they're basically uh, little carts that they don't go up and down. They just sort of like... They go through the... Wind through basically a maze. Yes. And the walls are arranged in such a way that you can never see quite what's up around the corner. Right, right. And there's something in in the sort of design of the play, that in terms of like how the narrative is designed, is that it's always kind of just obscuring what's around the corner. There's something that's just, it's not that it's necessarily attempting to provide twists and turns, although that may be the effect, mm -hmm. things are just always a little bit out of view, just mm -hmm. off stage. You can just see the edge of something. That, that was sort of a guiding principle in writing it. Really? I, I think the New York Times said something about when the twist comes or when the surprise happens, it's, it's pretty obvious that that was, of course, what was going to happen, but you still as you said, you didn't see it coming or it was just around the bend and you didn't quite yeah. glimpse it until it was on top of you. Can you describe the play in some way that doesn't give too much? The advertising often says uh, there's no such thing as death. And it starts with these two women. Jeez, I don't know how much to say. Well, what do you think would be fair to say about it without giving too much away? Yeah, it's about a woman named Hilda who is very interested in the world beyond this one. She has this feeling or this sense that she may have some kind of psychic ability or some kind of, but it's not developed. And she would really love to be able to do the things that real psychics do. Mm -hmm. And so one day she decides to go and see one and sees this woman named Linda, who's this English woman. And purports to be a professional psychic, professional medium. Yeah, who does a does a does what's called a sitting, where she sits in for a group of people and communes with the dead. And Hilda is very, very taken with what she can do and wants to be able to do the thing she can do. Mm -hmm. So it's about this relationship between these two women, and there's this sort of notion of the thin place that comes directly from Les. Oh, really? And it came when we were doing a workshop of Dana H. There is a moment where the form of the play breaks, where because Dana H. is a play where it's one person sitting in a chair. So thin place in a funny way is in dialogue with Dana H. Mm -hmm. It's one person sitting in a chair, lip syncing the story. And then there's something happens in the the, the theatrical grammar of the play changes. And I had notions of how the play's grammar changes, but I needed to get into a room and try to work it out in space to understand that. Mm -hmm. And I remember Les saying, 
yeah, it's as if the play has gone into the thin place. And I said, what's the thin place? I like that term. That's a good term. And he said, oh, well, it's, you know, it's the, oh gosh, I I think his exact words are in the thin place. I think I actually, (laughs) so I'm going to, I'm not going to remember exactly how the line goes, but uh, however Hilda describes what the thin place is, is exactly what Les said to me, word for word. It's a place in between worlds, and you can sometimes get lost there. I see. It's out of time, out of place, and sometimes people would be, you know, stumble into a thin place, and they're gone. Wow. And again, this is Les Les Waters, who was the director and has yes. been sort of, sort of a co-collaborator. Again, you you dedicated the play to him and Ricky Jay. But I just wanted to, yeah. if people have forgotten who Les is. And and uh, so I said, well, someday I'm going to do a play called The Thin Place. And so there is sort of this notion of these in-between spaces, and there's a lot of in-between spaces in the plays. You know, there's a lot of relationships where you're like, what is that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, well, they kind of live in this weird gray space where the boundaries are unclear, or there, you know, there's some stories in there about people who have these very difficult to describe jobs. They have a lot of money, but you just like, you don't know how they got their money. Everything kind of like, if you sort of look for it, everybody's living in this kind of nether realm in some way. Hmm. And that was something that, that feels uncanny to me. Like it felt that felt like something important in terms of my definition of horror, but it's also in these in-between spaces, you can exploit them. They're exploitable. People are exploitable when they're in the in-between space. They're vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And again, I I mean that in a couple of different ways. But one of the ones I I think about is to be certain is a problem. But there's also there's also something that, you know, if you're really smart, you can use ambiguity to to mess with somebody. Uh, And again, the idea of planting something in someone's brain, an idea that then sticks with them and perhaps even overwhelms them or controls them because this has been implanted. And and there are opposing viewpoints in this play, as, yeah. as there are in many of your plays. It's not like you're supporting this idea of uh, an afterlife or anything. There are both sides being presented in one way or another yeah. within the play. Is that correct? Is that accurate? And I'm interested in how people hack to put forth some ideas where you're like, wait, how did we get here? Mm -hmm. Ways in which people can maybe get you to start thinking something that then leads to another thought that starts to feel a little more queasy making. Mm -hmm. So that, that's a, that's a, that's an action that I'm playing out in the play. (laughs) And your intention was to to frighten us in some way as well, right? Yeah. One of your quotes about you wanted to recreate that feeling of when you're a little boy and you you had to pee in the middle of the night, but you didn't want to get up because you don't know what's around the corner. Yeah. There. It's, it's something a little a little scary or what's under the bed or, or that sort it's of a, thing. It's a combination of childhood fears and adult fears. Yes. And I think there's a lot of things that I was writing about in <laughs> 2018 that have become more representative of things happening in the world. Yes. Oh, yeah. There are certain trends that, you know, and it's not like I had any great insight. They were pretty obvious in 2017, 2018, that there were certain things happening in public discourse that felt Mm -hmm. very exploitable. And misinformation and things like that that take place, whether it's over the internet or on social media, things like that. Yes, that was clearly becoming more and more obvious in the, in those years. Yeah. And so, did you did you say to yourself, "I I'm setting out to make a scary play," or do you consider it? Yeah. I, I guess I don't want to scare people away. Yeah. I don't want them to think that this is, you know, it's like a horror show. It's not a horror show. It's it puts a little scare, a little fright into you. Yeah, it's it's about scary ideas, mm-hmm. and it's using the genre of horror to do that. But it's not, you know, there no one's coming out with a chainsaw. Or I, I don't know about <laughs> I don't know about your production. Maybe somebody else. But like, it's not. That's not the horror that I'm interested in. I mean, one of the playwrights that I think is 
actually, although he's not heralded as this, I actually think is one of the great horror writers for the stage is the writer Wally Shawn, mm -hmm. who's well known as an actor, and everybody's seen him as the the guy in a princess, the the Princess Bride, and Princess Bride, yeah. <laughs> but he's written a number of really extraordinary plays. And again, there's no ghosts in his plays. I do think they're horror plays in how they're showing something about the human animal and what we are capable of. And I, I don't think it's cynical, but I think it is It is coming from a place of watch out, watch out. You know, you got to be careful. <laughs> well, wait a minute. Are you telling me that in the thin place you are actually doing what you're talking about? Are you actually implanting something into our brains that is going to uh, take hold? Well, I mean, I would, I, I would never... <laughs> presume that I could do that, you know. <laughs> well, isn't that what all good theater does, though? Doesn't it implant something that you hope people talk about on the way out? You know, I'm, I'm very interested in, you know, I talked about magic earlier, and, and mentalism is, is a, is a mm -hmm. form of magic performance I'm, I'm really interested in. And I got very interested in, they have like some principles by which their effects work and they're they're sort of basic tips like you might have an effect where you are creating the sensation on somebody's arm that suddenly their arm has become very cold mm -hmm. you know there's a spot that becomes very cold but you would never begin that trick by saying now your arm is going to feel very cold in a moment right right, right? right. <laughs> because either either you earn the effect too easily or the person's like, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Right. So it's a it's a gentler approach than that, mm -hmm. you know. Lucas Nath, what's coming up for you? What's next? So is it the very next one? Yeah, the very next one is at the Atlantic in New York. It's a play called A Simulacrum. And uh, I haven't decided how much I'm saying about it in advance, <laughs> but it began because uh, Steve Chiffo, who's a magician I worked with on The Thin Place, and I've worked with on the, he worked on the Disney play with me. Uh, we've known each other for a long time. He worked on Dana H., who's actually our lip sync consultant for that show, hmm. uh, because he used to tour with Lipsinka, aka John Apperson, and, and, um, very, very talented human is capable of all sorts of extraordinary skills. And uh, he's an extraordinary magician. And, and he, he works very closely with David Blaine and yes. designs a lot of magic for shows in New York. We had been talking for a long time about doing a magic show together. You know, he was sort of like, what would be what would be my Ricky J show? He was a he was one of Ricky's protégés. Mm -hmm. Um, so Ricky means a lot to him. Sure. I love magic, but I also really don't like magic shows. I find them uncomfortable to watch. I always feel like the performer needs a lot from me. I hate audience participation. Oh, I hate it. <laughs> and and so uh, I was like, well, I don't know. I don't know how I would do a magic show. And Steve said, what you should look at are these old talk show interviews with magicians. And I started looking at them, like stuff from the Jack Parr show and on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the relationship between the magician and the interviewer is parallel to the audience. It's not, it's not directed to, directly to the audience. Right. It is despite the audience. Yes. Johnny Carson interviewing somebody, doing close-up magic, doing some kind of sleight of hand. The audience is witnessing it, but yeah. they're doing it together. Yes. And the I pressure's follow. off of the audience in a way. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. So, and I, I didn't feel done with audio work yet. I wanted to keep playing around with it and using some of the same ideas we did with Dana H. So I got us a room for a week and I said to Steve, show me everything you've got. Show me all your tricks. And I'll you'll show me tricks. I'll ask you questions. We can talk about stuff. We don't have to talk about everything. And we recorded it all. Hmm. And so... Without giving away too much, the show is a recreation of those workshops. It is not lip synced. There's a different thing that I'm doing with that one. Okay. But, you know, a simulacrum is a lesser copy of the original. Yes. So yes. 
this is a lesser copy of our workshops. <laughs> and yeah, what, what ends up happening, what ends up happening over the course of that week ended up turning into more weeks and months and years. Wow. So wow. Uh, it's an attempt to sort of capture what happened starting at the point of that workshop. Well, I'm always very impressed with your work, and I'm so looking forward to seeing A Thin Place. Hopefully, Scott will grab up some Milagrum when it becomes available, <laughs> because, as I said, he's a, he's a huge fan of your work, as am I. Lucas Ney, thank you so much for doing this. I'm sorry I took you so long, but oh, no. I really, uh, I, boy, I could talk to playwrights all day long, and there were so many other questions that I could have asked, that I wanted to ask, but it was just too interesting the way it was going. And some of the questions are, where do you get this idea and where do you get that idea and how did you do this? No, I actually very much appreciate that it it, it wasn't about where it is. You know, <laughs> the, the question you always asked is like, what was the inspiration for X? And it's sort of like, actually, it's not a linear path. Right. It's uh, much more complicated than that. So I, I'm very grateful to you for not. <laughs> what was the inspiration for The Thin Place? Thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been great. I really enjoyed it. And good luck with everything in the future. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, and even Easter is a little too soon. I would, I would wait until Memorial Day, frankly. Oh, why bother? That was Lucas Nath. Go to roadlesstraveledproductions.org and get your tickets for The Thin Place. You won't be sorry. It has a great cast. Tristan Trip Kelly, Margaret Massman, Renee Landrigan, and Dave Mitchell. What a great cast. What a great play. I'll see you there. We'll all be enjoying the expanded lobby, the beautiful bar, and perhaps a drink or two. And I'll see you here next time on RLTP's Off-Road with me, Pete Pomisano. Pete Pomisano.